0: Hey, this is George Kittle, and you're listening to Candlestick Chronicles.
1: What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Candlestick Chronicles. My name is Chris Biederman. I cover the 49ers for the Sacramento Bee. With me, it's my guy, my co-host, Kyle Madsen of Niners Wire, of USA Today Sports Media Group. And joining us, the second-ever guest on this podcast... It is the institution of 49ers beat coverage. It's Matt Mayoko of NBC Sports Bay Area. Matt, what's going on, buddy? Did, did
2: you just say I need to be institutionalized? Is that what that was about?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no,
2: you're, you're an institution. Oh, an institution. Okay. You've okay been my, I, I'm going to... Uh, uh, man, this is horrible. But who was the first guest on your podcast?
1: It was uh, Danny Kelly of The Ringer, who did, uh, who did okay. a good draft episode with us. Oh, fantastic. It's
2: my pleasure to join you, gentlemen, on Candlestick Chronicles.
1: The pleasure is all ours. So trying you to keep have,
2: Candlestick alive, aren't you?
1: Yeah. I'm trying yeah, really Candlestick hard. Candlestick is, is near and dear to our hearts, so we, we thought we'd want to keep that in, in the title. But you have a book coming out. Can you, can you talk to us about uh, Letters 287 and explain the, the process that, that went into putting this thing together? And can you tell people how they can get it?
2: absolutely uh this was a long time ago this was probably like six seven eight years ago and Dwight Clark and I were talking about whatever and I remember we were just maybe we were just talking about the catch and and uh how people different people were impacted by the catch and I remember then he told me, I would love to put a book together of all the crazy stories that I've heard about what people were doing at the time of the catch. And I remember he said, you know, someone he talked to jumped off a couch and, and fractured an ankle. And so I thought about it then, and I put together like, you know, 24 chapters or so of uh, the way I envisioned it was kind of, you know, it was a a book written by Dwight or, you know, co-written by me or whatever, where he would you kind of intersperse, you know, his life story with people's thoughts or their memories of the catch. And so I I showed it around to a couple agents and uh, some book publishers, and they just didn't think that it had you know, a national type of appeal to it. And so it kind of ended. And then in, I guess it would have been February of 18, I did a podcast interview with Dwight at his place in in Capitola, right before he moved to Whitefish. And it was, uh, I tell you, we had talked about doing a podcast and obviously he had been struggling with ALS. And he, he finally said, Hey, I'll do it, you know, whatever. I'll do it on Tuesday. You know, be at my place at at 10 AM. So I showed up and I rang the doorbell and rang it again and could kind of hear people, you know, could hear Kelly and, and Dwight inside and Kelly came to the door and said, you know, Dwight's really struggling today and I was like, oh, man, I'm sorry, you know, sorry to hear that. And he came down through the, through the hallway, really moving slowly. And he was kind of out of breath. And, and I said, hey, DC, man, we, you know, we don't have to to do this. If you're not feeling up to it, you know, don't, don't worry at all. And he said, no, no, I want to do it. Just let me, let me sit down at the table and and have a little time to catch my breath. And so I was, you know, I was kind of taken aback by his willingness to to sit down and and talk to me when, you know, this was probably the first time I'd seen him since the Dwight Clark day, and it, it was very clear, you know, how how much his health had deteriorated uh, deteriorated at that point. And one of the first things he he talked about on the podcast was what he had mentioned to me many years earlier, which was, you know, the memories of the catch and, and how he wished he could you know, put a book together. And on the spot, I said, well, I'm going to do, let's do this. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to put the word out for people to write letters and we'll put a book, book together. And so, I, actually, I don't know that I said that. I just said, "I'll, I will deliver the letters up to you and whitefish. And, and so it happened. I mean, I, I got you know, well more than a hundred letters and people went, you know, people just went with it. It was great. I mean, some of it was, you know, this is what I was doing at the time of the catch, you know, people at the stadium, you know, one person, you know, being showered with whiskey and eyes were burning <laughs> to people at home, crashing through windows and, and all these other stories and some of them were, I mean, unbelievably poignant from just what the impact was on their lives. And so when these letters came in, I, I was really touched by a lot of them. Some of them are really funny and others were just oh, bring a tear to your eye. And a couple weeks before I actually went up there, actually, it was a week week before I went up there, uh, Kirk Reynolds, who was putting together these lunches for Dwight, said, hey, we're, we're going to go up to visit Dwight. Uh, would you like to come and bring the letters? And I said, absolutely. I said, when when are you guys going? And he goes, well, we're going in, in July. Or actually, at that point, it was June. Uh, we're going in June, but also we're going this weekend. And I said, well, man, I'll, I'll go this weekend. Cause I have them and I'm so glad I did because the, the, that, that weekend was, it was May 20th and the next trip never happened because Dwight passed away two weeks later. But one of the, one of the dynamics of this was I, I asked Kirk Reynolds, who's all going up and he, and he listed some names and he said, it, and Ronnie Lott. And my first thought was, you know, Ronnie's a very protective guy loves his teammates I mean, they are still his teammates. They're still his guys. And I didn't know how Ronnie would react to me, a non-player, you know, in essence, tagging along. And Kirk said, Hey, I told Ronnie about, uh, about you coming and bringing the letters. And Ronnie said, what a great idea. We can sit around and read letters to him. And, that was the first time I thought of that part of it. I, I just thought I was going to deliver letters up there to him. But Ronnie's idea was, "Hey, let's sit around and read letters to Dwight." And I thought that is that's brilliant. So I was kind of uh, at that point. It was okay for me to be there because if you have Ronnie's approval, you're gold. So the we ended up doing that. I know I'm giving you a very long answer here, but <laughs> so we ended up doing in. in on Dwight's bed after we read letters to him for about an hour and a half. And again, he was having a really rough day, but those letters really brightened his spirits and everybody left there that day feeling really bittersweet, you know, just knowing that, that uh, he wasn't going to be with us much longer, but also kind of seeing the impact that those letters had on him. So he had asked about a book And I said, I don't know that a book can work, but I'd love to do a documentary at NBC Sports Bay Area. And so he said, okay, that sounds good to me. And we really got working on the documentary after he passed away on June 4th, 2018. And then after the documentary aired, which we, we called Letters to 87, we had several people come up to us and say, You know, this just, it has to be a book. We got to follow through on this and Cameron and company publishing out of, out of Petaluma with Brad Mangin, who's a photographer and who gained Dwight's trust during the the last few months of his life. He was taking all the pictures of those lunches that Dwight had with, with his teammates. Uh, Brad worked with uh, Chris Gruner over at, Cameron and Company Sports, and, and now the book is, is finished, and it's being printed, and, and uh, it will be released on 8-7, August 7th, so very excited about it, and the, the proceeds for the book go to the Golden Heart Fund, which is the charity that uh, 49er alumni started with some seed money from Eddie DeBarlow and the York family. Uh, takes care of former 49ers who are in who need assistance, financial um, and wh- whatever kind of assistance they they might need. But but that that is something that Dwight wanted. He wanted to, to support a charity that that takes care of his guys, uh, and so that's where where the money from this project will go.
1: That's awesome. So you can get it uh, you can get it on Amazon right now. Pre order, like you said, it comes out eight seven august 7th uh in about uh i guess five weeks six weeks from now um so yeah that's that's awesome that's that sounds really like cool. a really cool project i'm i'm really eager to check it out i guess we'll we'll do the the awkward transition to uh to to where the 49ers are right now and that's uh, in the middle of their summer break if you follow any players on social media a number of those guys are in europe uh george kittles honeymooning in mexico um uh, matt you, you were there with me and and during practice and the open practices during the offseason program, and to me, I think the biggest story to come out of everything was, you know where all the injuries um, guys are dealing with. and And it's my understanding that that the new training staff has been um, exceedingly cautious. and it's sort of part of that uh, you talk about load management in the NBA where NBA teams will, sit guys sit their important players particularly if they're dealing with any sort of ailment just to make sure they're they're healthy for when it matters and it's my understanding that the 49ers are are following that same approach do do you have any uh, any more insight you could offer in terms of how the 49ers are dealing with all these injury guy injured guys and and whether or not there should be real concern over over any of these guys who are coming back
2: yeah my my take on it is that y- yes i mean we all wrote about it we it kind of had to because, you know, those guys, so many of them, 20-plus guys, weren't practicing. But in the big picture, it means absolutely nothing. Uh, I, I think the only injury that was sustained during the offseason program that potentially could have any carryover effect, and just this off the top of my head, but correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but I think the, the only injury that could have any carryover is Jimmy Ward, and I'm not sure that that will either. I think they were being kind of overly cautious whenever they said that. I believe they said what eight to twelve weeks or eight to eleven weeks, something like that for his recovery. Um, you know, most of the injuries, the ones that we'll really be keeping an eye on, are pre-existing injuries, and the big ones are basically from guys from other teams coming over, Quan Alexander and Jason Verrett obviously all eyes will be on Jarek McKinnon as well. But yeah, I, I just don't see the, you know, I don't see any reason for concern about the injuries uh, that were keeping guys off the practice field in May and June. Um, If it happens in training camp and they start losing guys for multiple weeks in training camp, you know, now, yeah, now, now it is a concern. And certainly, the last couple of years losing guys into the regular season, you know, that, that that's what brings teams seasons to uh, to ends at the end of seventeen weeks of the regular season. So I, I don't see any concern at all, but let's face it, how these guys coming back from injuries, how they perform is going to determine what kind of season this is. Jimmy Garoppolo, Jarek McKinnon. Quan Alexander, maybe Jason Verrett, Jimmy Ward. I mean, those guys, th- those are key members of this team, and they need those guys playing at high levels for you know, the 2019 San Francisco 49ers to to make any kind of impact this year.
3: We talk a lot about injuries on this podcast because they have been such an issue for San Francisco the last couple of years. I want to focus on, on Nick Bosa and Debo Samuel, though, who both dealt – with injuries in the offseason program. Do you see any long term effects? Maybe not of the injuries, but of the time those guys missed during the offseason program.
2: For Bosa, no. I think Bosa is so far advanced at his position for for any player coming into the NFL. I mean, this guy was basically learning the college game and techniques at the college game in high school. And then in college, he was basically, you know, taking it uh, another step. I mean, he was basically in, in Ohio state working on his PhD in pass rush moves. So I, I don't see that being, having any impact whatsoever, but with Debo Samuel, I do because uh, it's, it, that's probably the most difficult position other than quarterback to play in Kyle Shanahan's offense. So you have to know a lot. And you have to be able to see the same things that the quarterback is seeing. And yeah, I mean, you can you can sit in that film room, you can be in the meeting room and watching and scribbles on a on a grease board all day long. But unless you're out there and you're doing that stuff at full speed and your your mind is is working to make that stuff become second nature at some point. Unless you're doing that, I just don't know that there's. Well, I don't think there's any substitute for those reps and you know the, the game speed, uh, learning on the fly like that. So I think with Debo Samuel, if he misses time in training camp, uh, I, I think that'll be you know a big deal. But again, I, I think that the injury that he had, which was some sort of you know minor hip thing. Uh, I I don't think that that's going to be an issue and basically what they do in the first couple weeks of training camp, they're repeating the stuff that they did in the off-season program. So basically all the installations, you know, the first day of installation in training camp is the first day of the off-season program. So these aren't new concepts that he will have, but it will be the first time that he's had that opportunity to carry over what he's learned in installation onto the practice
1: field. One of the interesting things I thought watching practice this year was, was just how often the 49ers were doing seven on seven stuff. And obviously that's because Jimmy Garoppolo hasn't been cleared for, for full team drills. Um, I thought Garoppolo for the most part looked pretty sharp. It's, it's really tough to glean anything significant from these off season practices, particularly seven on sevens when there are no pads. Uh, things like that, but, but were you able to to uh, develop any any strong opinions one way or another about how Garoppolo looks or where he's at in in his rehab?
2: No, but I think that that's uh, that is perceptive of you that that eleven on eleven kind of took a backseat to seven on seven during these during this offseason program because you know the 49ers hope that the guys out there, the quarterbacks out there, doing the eleven on eleven stuff. You know, we, we're not going to see them at all once the regular season starts. So, you know, they wanted it controlled, you know, on the seven-on-seven seven stuff. Obviously, there's no pass rush, so the quarterback can can sit in the pocket with all very controlled and scripted moves. Whereas if you have a pass rush, you know, even if you, you're you're not in danger as a quarterback of being hit, you still might make sudden movements that you haven't already kind of mapped out in your brain. So the 49ers wanted to limit that to basically zero uh, with Jimmy Garoppolo. Um, No, I think, you know, Garoppolo looked good. You, you would expect him to look good. Pretty much every quarterback looks good in seven on seven. Uh, Yeah. I think the the playbook is wide open. He has a better sense of, of what he's being asked to do again, as he should. Uh, But as with all these guys, you you really don't know until week one in Tampa. that's all all the training camp stuff. You know, I'll, I'll say this, maybe the, the, the two days of joint practices in Denver will probably be the first real opportunity. We'll see Garoppolo and, and kind of have a gauge now for what he's all about, because I don't expect him to play much in week one of the, re- of the uh, exhibition season, probably won't play much, uh, that, that Denver games week two, right. Of the exhibition season.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. So I would expect him to, to, you know, use all that practice time, uh, and probably not play a whole lot in week two and then week three, he'll probably play a reasonable amount and then not play it all week four. So, um, probably the first gauge we'll get with any of these guys, is during those two practices in Denver.
1: All right, guys. We've got an announcement to make. Blue Wire is teaming up with Harry's to make sure our listeners are shaving comfortably. Go to Harrys.com/bluewire to save ten dollars on a value trial set, which includes a five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. You get all that for just three dollars, shipped right to your door. Enough with the cheap razors. It's totally worth trying Harry's. Harry's has fixed shaving by combining a simple, clean design with quality and durable blades at a fair price. Harry's founders were tired of paying for razors that were overpriced and over Harry's bought a world-class blade factory in Germany that's been making quality blades for over 95 years. Join the 10 million who have tried Harry's. Claim your trial offer by going to harrys.com slash bluewire. All of Harry's blades come with a 100% quality guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let them know and they'll give you a full refund. Again, make sure you go to harrys.com slash bluewire to redeem your razor for just $3. So you say we haven't
3: gotten a, a a great gauge on some of those guys, and there was a ton of seven on seven during the off season program. But did any player in particular, or did any group of players, uh, stand out to you during during those workouts?
2: Well, basically, this the off season program is like a glorified passing league, you know. So you you wouldn't expect really any of the offensive or defensive linemen. Uh, you wouldn't expect the the linebackers to really stand out unless we're talking about them in coverage. Uh, The the one guy I thought who looked as good as anybody on the field was Akello Witherspoon. Uh, And that's obviously a good thing for the 49ers, but I also think it's probably a little bit misleading too because no one has ever questioned Akello Witherspoon's athleticism, his feet, uh, you know, the all the things that happen in the off season program and the way the, that program is structured is probably conducive to him looking good. And I think he really did look good. Now it's, you know, once the pads go on and you, you have to be more physical, how is he going to perform? But you yeah, know, I would expect the 49ers secondary to be vastly improved this year just because, Basically, their their number one remaining outside pass rusher from from last season, Ronald Blair, is now you know their number three guy at least uh, as an outside pass rusher. So with D Ford and Nick Bosa, I mean they've they've improved that dramatically. Um, DeForest Buckner might not have the number of sacks he had last year but I think he has a chance to be an even more impactful player. So I think all that stuff that's happening in the front seven, especially the the pass rush, uh, w- will pay off big time for the secondary. So I would say uh, – I'd say Witherspoon uh, looked pretty good. One, one guy that I thought going into the offseason program might be vulnerable as far as a roster spot goes is Marquise Goodwin, but he looked like he had a really good camp – uh, I'd say the same for Trent Taylor. I, I think that going in, I thought that his roster spot was pretty vulnerable. I mean, l- watching him perform, uh, I would not be surprised if he ends up being the the number one pass catching wide receiver, maybe not lead the team in yards at wide receiver, but uh, he seems to be the kind of wide receiver that, that clearly his new wide receivers coach, uh, could kind of latch onto, <laughs> but also Jimmy Garoppolo. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, I mean, would, would you, Chris, would you be surprised right now if, if Trent Taylor has more catches than any of the wide receiver on the team?
1: No, not at all. Because we, we saw how important Trent Taylor was to Garoppolo in those five games to end 2017. Um, I, I snickered at, at, Uh, The mentioning, I think it's always going to be funny, frankly, mentioning Wes Welker and uh, Trent Taylor for all the obvious reasons and and the comparisons between the two and the fact that uh, Taylor's college teammates called him Wes when he when he first yeah. got to louisiana tech i just i just think that whole relationship is funny
3: are there similarities uh, between them
1: <laughs> yeah you know they both went
3: to
2: southern colleges oh yeah that's, that's the,
3: where it is okay i was yeah, trying to find true. the louisiana connection okay. tech
2: and, and texas tech yeah or they both went to colleges and, in the south with the with tech you know yeah
3: technical universities yeah. okay so that's,
2: that's okay. that that to me is the biggest uh biggest cop Mm. between those two guys
1: yeah that makes sense totally (laughs) um you guys actually i think you and a few other reporters outscooped me at the owners meetings in arizona in march when you guys spoke to jed york 49er ceo uh i believe it was sunday night and i had yet to to go to the the biltmore in arizona but you guys being the good reporters that you are staked it out and and talked to Jed and one of the things he said to you guys was that he's supremely confident in the uh in the partnership between Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch and so I I asked this just because we're, we're getting to a point now where the rubber really needs to to hit the road for these guys they had reasons why uh the seasons didn't necessarily go as they would have hoped in in years one and two but now that we're entering year three now that it's Really, Jimmy Garoppolo's second season within the system. Um, I mean, it, do do you see at any point over 2019 or this calendar year that that Jed York is gonna Jed York is gonna start putting pressure on Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch in terms of actually you know putting their jobs on the line uh, coming up here, or are we still at least you know beyond this year, two years, three years from now, thinking about uh, their their futures with with this team?
2: Well, I, I think that this is obviously entering the third year of each of those guys having six-year contracts. I still think it's at the point where losses aren't enough. In, in other words, that there have, have to be other reasons for the organization or Jed York and specifically to start losing patients and it's whether you know, whether the, the locker room is starting to revolt or, you know, I think every time that there's been issues with the 49ers and, and we've seen, you know, we saw what three straight uh, turnovers as far as the head coach goes and, and the general manager was involved in one of those. Every time there's been other reasons other than the win loss record. Uh, you know, clearly with, with the Harbaugh regime is it was, it was an eight and eight record, but. You know, you just walk through that building, and you could tell that just something was wrong. And the head coach and the general manager weren't getting along. You know, the next year, you you knew that uh, you know Jim Tom Sula uh, just w- was completely overmatched as a head coach, and players did not have faith on really either side of the ball that that there were answers there. With Chip Kelly, uh, you know, you had the the dynamic of him and and the general manager, but also there just wasn't a sense that that system could work. And so there, there's there's always been reasons other than whatever the record is, and that's why I think mean, Jed York has remained confident in that there's not dysfunction with the head coach and the general manager, they, they work together. They appear to work together. They're on the same page, uh, through, through good decisions and bad decisions, but also, you know, they have two systems in place that work. You know, Kyle Shanahan is a proven offensive coordinator. His offense works. Uh, you could see it last year with Nick Mullins. I mean, Nick Mullins played really good football. I'm not taking anything away from him, But to see how wide open some of those receivers were, George Kittle in particular, that he had to throw to makes you go, you know, we had not seen those kinds of play designs or those kinds of guys being schemed open in years. And then defensively, defensively is kind of interesting because that's a proven system that the 49ers put in place based on what Seattle did but also what, with what uh, Robert Sala was comfortable with as far as uh, his time in Jacksonville. But this year, th- that, that, that defense looks different. And I know I asked that, the question to Robert Sala about you know the changes in the defense, and he tried to downplay it. It's the same defense. We're doing the same things, but this is what we're doing. And you watch him practice, and it looks it looks a lot different. Way different. And, and way different. And, and <laughs> it, I mean, basically you have the, the wide nine, the, the defensive ends are lining up much wider. They're setting the, the edge to force run plays in, but also really testing the 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 mobility and the agility of those outside blockers on the offensive line are tied in. And and then you have three similar kinds of linebackers, which is something they hadn't had in the past. And there's going to be a lot of pressure on those guys in the run game. So defensively, they've made a a pretty significant switch this year. Uh, But your initial question was uh, the pressure of winning. I I don't know that we really know what's going to happen until you see it. You you just can't really say, well, if they go six and ten, heads have to roll. But how did they go six and 10? Why did they go six and 10? And right now, you don't see the, the cracks of the, in the foundation. I know there was the the one report that, you know, there was friction. I, I haven't seen it. I didn't see it before that. Haven't seen or heard anything about that since. Uh, I, I think that they're still on the same page, but if... If some of these guys that they've brought in don't work, I mean that leash just, you know, that leash is gonna get shorter and shorter, but I think they're confident at this point. I think they have reason to be confident that this is a much better team than it was a year ago. The one area where I think you can rightfully question them is what they did in the in the defensive backfield. And what they did in the defensive backfield was they they got what they thought was a a starter by going out and re-signing Jimmy Ward. A lot of questions about that. And then they also got another possible starter by going out and, and signing uh, Jason Verrett. And there's a lot of questions about that. So those are basically the only two moves they made in their defensive backfield. And they, they completely went in different directions in the draft feeling that the safety position and the cornerback position weren't as big of needs as getting a defensive end, Nick Bosa completely understand that getting Debo Samuel wide receiver. I completely understand that Jalen Hurd, I'm a little bit skeptical about, and then I actually kind of, I understand why they got Mitch Wyshnowski. Could they have gotten him the next round? Maybe not, probably not. And ultimately, yeah, having a punter is kind of a big deal so i i question the the jalen hurd move more than i question the wish move
1: yeah i kind of i kind of throw the the jalen hurd pick in into the same category as i as i did um the the running back what's his first name williams from utah Joe, Williams. Uh, Joe Williams from Utah, a couple yeah. of years ago, who never ended up playing it down. There, were, there were similar questions about um, his commitment to the to the game, and and obviously, Heard and Williams are not the same. They're completely different circumstances. But I, I think it's fair to to look at those two picks with with the same type of skepticism, at least as soon as they were made. But I I want to take 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 a, take everyone back to the early Matt Mayoko reporting days when he was on the 49ers beat. So what year did you start covering the, the 49ers first?
2: Well, full time year round in 1995. And 1995. before that, yeah, that was back. Um, they, they had just uh, ended the run of leather helmets. Uh, they just <laughs> Introduced the face mask, right. Uh, color television, uh, was a new thing, and uh, and I was uh, a first-year B reporter covering the 49ers for the Oakland Tribune. So right. what you're so saying
3: is they haven't won a Super Bowl since you've started covering the team.
2: This is this is true. So I was covering hmm. them kind of on a part-time basis, uh, doing other things, uh, but covering kind of like backup and, and all home games uh, in 92, 93, 94 and then ninety-five I became uh, the full time beat reporter.
1: So what's what's interesting obviously about that is this predates Twitter and social media and the immediacy yeah. of news and, and national reporters out, out scooping us um on all the big stories. But what what was a day in a life like back then when you know you you file something that goes in next morning's paper and, and you're not publishing it immediately? Uh, how much different was that? and and how what did you ever think that we would be uh, in this sort of age where news is so instantaneous and second by second and uh, and it's all about timing more so for a lot of people more so than than being factually correct. Could, could you just talk about the the changes that you've seen in this landscape and how you've had to adapt to it?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it started off. I would write basically two stories a day uh, I'd write a, a main story and write a notebook and I'd file them into the paper. And then the consumer wouldn't read them, you know, would it land on the doorstep until the next morning. And so in those days, a scoop was a scoop. Now, if you had a scoop, it lasted a full 24 hours before anybody could, could counter that. And now you know, the, the, the day of the scoop is, is kind of gone um, in this sense that Adam Schefter can report, you know, whatever on the 49er beat or, or any other beat. And his, his news is, you know, what is it now? Is it still 140 characters? It's more than that, right? Oh, it's
1: 280. It's,
2: It's 280. There you go. Yeah. So it's, 140 just kind of rolls off the tongue a little bit better. So he can give you the news, you know, this guy is signing with this team, and then he's on to the next thing. Uh, you know, Ian Rappaport, the same way. They're on to the next thing. Uh, the The local reporters now don't break news because, in essence, you know, agents can go one-stop shopping. In the old days. all the reporters would call the agents and the agents would call people back one by one, you know, by and large, the the big powerful agents don't do that anymore. So they can kind of just put it out there and then the national guys can report it, break the news. And then I think where, where there's still a reliance on the local beat reporters are guys like you and me, and everybody else who covers the 49ers. Now we can dive a little bit deeper and Mm -hmm. we can say, you know, this is how it impacts the team. You know, this is why they would make this move. This is where this guy fits in. This is who he's going to be competing against. This is what it says about this other guy who's currently on the team, whose job this guy might take. So we can kind of give more context to it because, our job is we should know our team you know the team we cover uh better than than the national guys and they, and they've already moved on so uh yeah the, it it has changed quite a bit i mean the 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 beat reporter dynamic is, is definitely different than it was in the past and it's just not the nfl you know i i notice that with you know mlb and and certainly uh the nba where there's you know there's the one guy uh who's kind of breaking everything there so that that's in in early on it just killed me to get crushed by adam schefter on the first day of of free agency i mean it just was not fun at all and now that i'm older and mellowed a little bit uh i kind of i understand how it works and i realize uh, what I can do and I can't do, and I try to to focus in more on on what I can do rather than beating myself up over uh, losing, you know, losing a scoop.
1: Guys are terrible at taking care of their health. Whether it's a knee injury, bad back, or something worse, guys are usually more comfortable rubbing some dirt on it than seeing a doctor. The same is true for erectile dysfunction. Studies show 70% of guys who experience ED don't get treated for it. Thankfully, Roman has created an easy way to chat with a doctor online with roman you can get medical care for ed if appropriate from the comfort and privacy of your own home you can handle everything online in a convenient discreet manner getting started is simple just go to getroman.com/bluewire blue and complete an online visit if your doctor decides that treatment would be appropriate they can prescribe genuine medication that can be delivered in discreet packaging right to your door with free two-day shipping Guys, go talk to the doctor. Erectile dysfunction can be tough to tackle, but it's really important to get checked out. With Roman, it's easy to connect with a doctor. Just go to roman.com slash bluewire to get a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's get roman.com slash bluewire for a free visit to get started. Get roman.com slash bluewire.
3: This is Mike McGlinchey the San Francisco 49ers, and you're listening
0: to Candlestick Chronicles.
3: Did you find that adapting to kind of like you said, you used to write two things a day and they'd, they'd last 24 hours, but now everything is immediate. If something happens, there needs to be yeah. a post up immediately. If ten things are happening, ten posts have got to get up. You know, uh, did you did you find that? Do you find that easier knowing that like, hey, if there's information, I'm writing about it right away, or is it more difficult now um, knowing there's no deadlines, there's no nothing to file. You're just gonna file it. Uh, to Twitter or to to the website immediately.
2: I I think it's definitely more difficult now. I think it's, I think it's great for the consumer. I mean, there's no better time, you know, in the history of the world to be a fan uh, than, than it is right now, because, you know, you don't have to wait for the morning paper to arrive uh, until you get your news. I mean, it's basically if, if, if you're scanning Twitter and it hasn't been reported, that means It means it probably hasn't happened. Right. And, you know, I always, I always laugh at, you know, the, the Twitter questions. People will say, hey, you know, anything going on with, with this? You know, hey, you have the 49ers signed this guy yet? <laughs> and I'm thinking, are you just not familiar with, with how this works? You know, when, when we find out, we report. There's no, there's no like, three-hour lag time. Like, oh, right? yes, that did happen. I, I
3: forgot. Thank you.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ah, dang. Thanks for reminding me. Yeah, they just signed. They just uh, worked the trade for, for Tom Brady. Yeah, I forgot. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, no, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot different uh, now. I mean, we still have fun in that press room. There's still, you know, Eric Branch, I think, is kind of the ringleader of the, <laughs> of the uh, shenanigans played in there. But for the most part, when we come in after a press conference or after an open locker room or after whatever, John Lynch talks to us, everybody is pretty much head down and grinding for, you know, at least 90 minutes to to get those stories up. And, you know, there's there's an immediacy now where, you know, now a scoop is the first person who can tweet that. Uh, Jimmy Garoppolo's working out with Tom house where you know, everybody got the same information at the same time. I knew I'd, I'd throw that one in there for you because I know that one got under your skin, but that's kind of the way it is. And then, you know, pro football talk or, or somebody else or, you know, other aggregators will pick up. Whoa. you know the uh, whatever. The Sacramento Bee is reporting that this is happening. And it's because the Sacramento Bee and Chris Biederman got up that tweet you know, thirty seconds before anybody else did. So it, it's it's kind of, you know, it's uh, it's different. It's not it's certainly not better for the reporters, but I think it certainly is better for the fans. And the other part of, of this is that, you know, now people expect their content for free. Right. You know, now the the, the the newspapers screwed up dramatically in the early days of the internet by just saying hey will the stuff that people are paying for we'll just put up on our website and condition people to get their news for free and it's it's basically destroyed the industry
3: i want to stick real quick with what you were saying about about social media and and the immediacy of getting the information up right away does that change or have you had to alter the way you go about your reporting because of that. And along the same lines, when somebody like Schefter breaks something, what's your process for going about, um, reporting on, on something that he might break?
2: Well, I I will say that we, we all know the reputations of reporters, uh, national reporters. And if one national reporter, report something I might be a little bit more wary of it than if somebody like Adam were reported. I mean, right. Adam's Adam's very solid, obviously. Uh, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Adam and, and the work he's done to, to put himself in this position where, you know, he basically gets every, you know, or darn near uh, every breaking news story out there. My process has changed from you know, years ago, again, in the newspaper days, you'd want to get three sources for every story. Right. You know, you'd want to, uh, and you'd have time to do that. Now, I mean, now it, it depending on who the source is, uh, depending on uh, the, the timeliness of it, I mean, I, I have no problem, as I'm sure any reporter in the in the country has mm-hmm. no problem. Uh, going with with a single source story because if you know who the source is and if if uh, I could give you an know, well like if a if a player tells me I'm re-signing or I've agreed to terms or I just signed then I'm going with it uh, and I don't have to make necessarily a phone call upstairs to the 49ers saying hey did you guys sign this guy right. because I know in the time now that it takes me to, to dial or text or whatever, somebody else has had that story. And there have been times, certainly, where I've I've had information and I wanted to to round it out and maybe thinking I had time to do something a little bit more elaborate and I've got bitten in the in the butt by it. Um, I, I don't Thankfully, off the top of my head, thankfully, I haven't, um, I haven't been victimized by anything that, that I went with before it was ready and it ended up being inaccurate. Um, and that happens, you know, that happened, it still happens, obviously. Uh, you, you see it, um, almost any time of the year you, you, you see things like that, but, uh, yeah, I'd say the biggest change would be, you know, the day, the day of the the three source story is, is pretty much done now. Now, if uh, you know, if if Jimmy Garoppolo has been, you know, on fire and playing the best football of his career, now I don't talk to Jimmy Garoppolo. I don't talk to uh, you know two of his receivers and a tight end. And I don't talk to a coach and put them all in one story. Jimmy Garoppolo talking about it is one blog post or one uh, post on NBC sports, Bay area.com. The receivers talking about Jimmy Garoppolo is another one. And the coach talking about Jimmy Garoppolo is another one. So it's, it's kind of that constant churn that you don't, you know, now you don't want too much time to go by before you post something new because, People are currently refreshing, and if they refresh twice in a row and they see the same story, they get bored and go on to the next thing.
1: And I, I want to give Matt a lot of credit for this because I, I see Matt work in real time, and, and I go through a similar process in that, you know, we'll go to a press conference or we'll go to go to open locker room, and there will be a story. And generally, if there's a big enough story, we'll we'll all write a different version of the same thing. And Matt is a blogging robot who can turn around a, a post, a 400 word post in like five and a half minutes. It's really kind of remarkable. And I give you credit because you did start in, in the newspaper era where you had so much time to do all that. And and I just, it's, it's pretty incredible to, to watch everybody work because everybody in the media room has their own process and is a little bit different. Like since Barrows joined the athletic he writes longer stories and fleshes things out more and he's not necessarily on deadline. Mayoko's always lightning quick and and turning around blog posts really fast and so is Cam Inman of of the Barry News group who's been doing this for a long time too and then there's Eric Branch who is who is similar to to Barrows in that he takes time to to flesh things out. I, and and you mentioned it Matt like the dynamic in the media room. I really enjoy and and I've covered other teams and other sports where the the dynamic among beat reporters isn't as healthy or as positive as ours is. I think we're all pretty close friends and we're all competitive in the sense, but we don't have to talk about it. Or very rarely does anybody ever get mad at one another, uh, even though you know we're we're in obvious competition with, with the with other people. I mean, how would you describe what what the dynamic is in in that media locker room or in the media? Yeah, I remember
2: room, one so. guy. I remember one guy blowing his top at the 2017 draft. I think it was. But other than that, oh, that was like 20.
1: 15 what's that earlier than that yeah yeah Yeah, someone got really really upset uh (laughs) (laughs) so uh there was there was a series of i want to say it was fifth round picks like the niners had uh like three fifth round picks or something and they all came within like 20 minutes And, and when you're covering the draft and you're in the media workroom a player gets drafted and then the pr staff gets him on the phone for a conference call right away so there was one instance where one reporter who won't be named uh, was the only one manning the, uh, the conference call while everyone else is sitting at their computer and typing and, and a couple of reporters went and left their recorder, their audio recorder at the, at the phone where the conference call was and then ran back because the Niners were making picks and we're all, I mean, it was very hectic and one reporter just got extremely upset and was using all sorts of curse words. And uh, but it was really the only time since since I've been on the beat in 2013 when there's been a noticeable level of anger uh, among us.
2: I I yeah. You should get that guy in the podcast this week.
1: <laughs> this week? Yeah. Well, I think I think this is oh. the only episode we're going to record this week.
2: I, I think. Well, okay. Well,
3: you well can we can talk then. about it. I can't believe you guys. Uh, I can't believe you guys forgot the fabled Ronald Blair, John Theus, Fawn Cooper, fifth round of 2016.
1: Yeah, that's what it was. God, unbelievable. No, it might have been. I don't. Think, Fourteen. I don't when did think... Mike Davis get drafted? Was well, it the Mike yeah, Davis? So that boost?
2: would have been. Fourteen. Yeah, that would
3: have been like. Yeah. Uh, uh, Mike Davis 10. was fifteen with Blake Bell and DeAndre Smelter
2: in the fourth I round. I think
1: that's what it yeah. was.
2: That's the one. That's
1: I the
2: think one. that's what it was. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no. Here's, you know, before I got on the beat, I'd I'd heard stories of of other. Of other beats, you know, of uh, the old saying was, you know, five beat writers, five caps to the stadium. Um, yeah, I think I've, I've been pretty lucky, even from the beginning, when I think he was even more outwardly competitive, uh, you know, working on the beat with guys like Iron Miller and Clark Judge. Uh, it, it's always been a very cordial beat. And, and I, I learned a great deal from being in that, in that workroom as you know a young pup uh, watching Ira Miller, watching Clark. Um, it, yeah. But it's always been good. And it, it's, there's never been any, you know, any animosity. It, it's almost like, I mean, not to this degree, where the old uh, the old cartoon where the, the sheep dog and the, was that a coyote or whatever it was, you know, they, they punch, they punch their time cards in uh, <laughs> yeah, Ralph and then they and go into the think. field. What is it?
3: I think it's Ralph and Sam.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and then, you know, they're going head to toe and they're battling it out. Uh, You know, for an eight-hour shift, and then they punch out, and they're like, "Okay, you know, see you tomorrow." (laughs) Um, You know, it's kind of—I mean, again, not to that degree because it's not uh, nearly as as cutthroat uh, while we're working. But I think every everybody kind of knows what you know what everybody's up to. Everybody understands uh, the business to the degree that. In, in a lot of ways in this business you're kind of in it together um, everybody realizes the challenges that everybody else faces so it, it's it's been it's been pretty good and I mean I'll even take it a step further I think that through my time by and large covering the 49ers the coaches the players the media there's there's been Again, by and large, a pretty good understanding of of just being able to work together. I think the players generally understand what it is we do. Uh, again, by and large, not everyone, but head coaches and general managers generally understand what we do. and uh, it, it just makes more sense to work together than to be constantly butting heads. And of course there will be times there have to be times when you butt heads and when you write things that, that people don't like, uh, and that, that happens all the time, maybe in the course of a season, you know, might happen a half dozen or more times. Uh, and in those situations you know, what I've always done is just my, my refrain is, you know, was it fair? Was it fair and accurate? And you know, you, I I don't take cheap shots. I don't make fun of people's injuries. I don't, you know, I, I try to just I try to keep it fair and and honest and accurate. And if I do that, regardless of how it comes out or or what I report, um, how it sits with an individual who works for the Forty ers if I can. If I can say, if I can look the person in the eye and say, you know, was it fair? Was it accurate? Then, then we agree to disagree. All
1: right, we could we could talk for forever about uh, yeah, about I have jobs so many questions <laughs> and, and the football world and all that, but we're running out of time here. So, Matt, I, I want to end this uh, on a question that's that I know is very near and dear to your heart. Um, what are the, the the best three beers? You, you you've had this off season so far
3: and after that oh, rank the 49ers beat riders <laughs> <laughs>
2: um the best three beers i've had i'm gonna stick with the hazy ipas okay i've i've, I've been loving the hazy ipas mm-hmm. um i i'm going to the best three beers i'm not even going to mention russian river um obviously they're they're not known for their hazies but i would imagine they're if they wanted to they could do they can knock that out of the park too
1: santa rosa but i shout out. love
2: i love Bear bottle which is located in the bernal heights area of san francisco uh i really like ghost town which is mm. in west oakland and then another one that i, I like all their beers and um I, I went to their place a, about a year and a half ago or so. It's Revision Brewery out of Sparks. So those three right there just off the top of my head are, are three that I I
1: really enjoy. Which which one, the which Revision did I have this week that I texted you about? Was it the – Yeah, the, the you hop- had the uh, Disco Ninja. Disco Ninja, fantastic from Revision. Big Revision's fan. Revision's
3: really yeah. good. They, they have a lot of their stuff in exactly. uh, Sacramento.
1: Well, Matt, I want to wrap this up. Um, I really, really appreciate you coming on. And um, I remember, I'll always remember the first day that that I actually went to cover the team for a now defunct website. I went completely overdressed to a rookie minicamp. I was in slacks and a button down when everyone else is in golf polos and big hats and I'm sweating and I'm nervous about introducing myself to Matt Mayoko because I had been reading him for about a decade at that point. Um, And you have been nothing but i mean the utmost professional I, I consider you a friend and i really appreciate that and um you know you guys have been everybody on the beat who's been on there longer than than me which is just about everybody has been super accommodating and friendly so i just want to thank you for that and thank you for coming on the uh, the candlestick podcast the candlestick chronicles podcast <laughs>
2: Well, I appreciate it, Chris. I appreciate those words. And that just tells me that I just don't give you nearly as much crap as I should <laughs> if I've made you feel so comfortable. So I'm gonna have to ramp that up a little bit. But no, I, I do appreciate it. And I will I will say this, I don't I don't I certainly don't like to give out compliments too much, but uh, you, you've done it the right way. Uh you you've you've risen uh, to the point you are now you will continue to rise and yeah i i I really like the way that that you've handled yourself on the beat so kudos to you and kyle i you know i don't want to (laughs) leave you out of this love fest too. no it's Uh, okay (laughs) we'll we'll, we'll have to we'll have to get together and and toss back a few revisions that sounds great thanks for having me on candlestick chronicles
1: yeah thanks for the kind words maddie and uh the check is in the mail you enjoy you enjoy the rest of your time off
2: I will. Thanks, guys. thanks, Matt.
1: All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Candlestick Chronicles this week. Uh, I'm going to be on vacation the next couple weeks. I'm not exactly sure what the recording schedule is going to be like, but we will let you know when we're recording another episode, going, so keep it I'm, locked. And uh, going rogue and just recording a bunch of episodes by myself. Do that. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you guys soon. Enjoy your summers.